You're listening to Ramp, the Insight Squared podcast. This is Ramp, the SaaS analytics podcast brought to you by Insight Squared. Want data-driven improvements on your sales team? Insight Squared is here to help. Sign up for a free trial of our product at www.insightsquared.com slash free dash trial. I'm your host, Kara Hogan, and today I'm talking about the ever-increasing complexity of B2B sales with Bob Apollo. Bob is the founder and managing partner at Inflection Point, the UK-based B2B sales process experts. He's worked for many of the world's most respected tech companies and lived through a series of successful mergers, acquisitions, and IPOs. He founded Inflection Point Strategy Partners in 2005 to help tomorrow's tech companies get a leg up on sales and cut through the complexity. Though he focuses on tech today, Bob started out his sales career at a very different sort of company. It was a random act, really, a response to a newspaper advert. And I ended up wholesaling motor accessories out of the back of a battered old van for a year. That's amazing. (laughs) So that's a very blue-collar approach to selling. And so how did you transition from that to more high-tech sales? When did you make that switch? So within about a year, I started to realize I'd like to do something which required a little more creativity. And so I joined a small tech-based business. You know, in those days, we were selling office computers the size of a desk, and with less power than a lot less power than my Apple Watch. And I, I did that for a couple of years, and it was a pretty good grounding. But I started to then acknowledge that, you know, I really needed to be somewhere that would have a structured approach to helping me develop. And I made probably the best career choice of my life when I then chose to work for Hewlett Packard for the next decade. Mm. And that was a fantastic experience. At that stage, it was an exemplary company, you know, the poster child for Silicon Valley. And I learned an enormous amount in my time at HP. I ended up working and moving to progressively relatively younger and earlier stage technology-based businesses. You know, many of them were post, they're all post-startup, but they were in a growth phase. And of course, what happens to successful companies in that sort of growth phase is they either go public or they get acquired. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up living through actually a number of successful trade sales, uh, IPOs, and so on. However, those mergers and acquisitions were not all positive experiences. Well, I was trying to escape from the treadmill of building entrepreneurial businesses, seeing them acquired. And then seeing all the entrepreneurial life squeezed out of them by the acquirers. Mm. Uh, Of course, the acquirers didn't mean to do it. It was just they couldn't avoid doing it. You know, I think that's an experience that many people who have lived through the acquisition of an entrepreneurial company by a very big established company have experienced. Although financially it can be rewarding, I decided I'd had enough of that. Because he had so much experience with B2B sales at tech companies, Bob decided to start his own business, Inflection Point. You know, if you think of the world of commerce, Inflection Point's uh, events that signal a very significant change in the evolution of a company or an industry or a market. But what I meant when I was thinking about Inflection Points are Inflection Point's 
within the life of a company where particular choices, whether they're made one way or another, have a tremendous impact on the future success of the organization. You know, those inflection points might include getting really clear about your business focus. They might include getting a round of investment and investing it very efficiently and effectively to, you know, drive sales forward. Or they might mean a conscious expansion into a new product area or a new territory. So, so an inflection point is a point in the life of a company where choices are made that have a substantial impact on the future success of that organization. And so when you're working with your clients, how are you trying to guide them through this process? I mean, what do you specialize in helping companies with? What I've learned is, and, and my years at HP contributed to this, is there are really three primary things that I believe organizations need to focus on. And I'm going to assume that they've developed a product or solution which is a good fit for a market need. But, you know, once you've got to that point, that's still no guarantee of success. So I think the three pillars on which success are built are firstly, real clarity of focus, being very clear about which organizations represent your most promising prospects, which roles within those organizations are your most powerful potential champions, which issues which issues that you choose to target and focus on are likely to be most important and most compelling to your prospects. So focus is one really key element. And I think without focus, it's awfully easy to spread your energies far too thinly. You know, whenever I hear a client say something like, how hard can it be to win just 1% of a very large market? Actually, the answer is, it can be incredibly hard. And your chances of success are much improved, much amplified by narrowing down your focus to the point where you could get yourself into the leading position as a supplier to those organizations and those roles of a solution to fix that issue. I think the second dimension is having the right systems in place. And I, 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 I use the term systems rather than just processes, because I think you need to work out what a repeatable success formula looks like, for example, in your sales cycle. But it then needs to be embedded. It needs to be embedded in your CRM, in your marketing automation, in your analytics. You know, that focus and that process needs to be part of the fabric of how you run your business. And then the third element, and you know, really can't ignore it, of course, is talent, that you need the right people on board, that you need to accurately assess the competence and the potential of your existing staff and act accordingly. But you also need to be thoughtful in knowing what sort of attributes, what sort of attitudes, what sort of abilities you want to recruit to. So I'd say three key focuses or emphasis, right. focus, systems, and talent. Bob explained that there's always been a tension in sales between the hard data and creativity. Over years, I've seen a discussion about is selling an art or a science, or what's the balance between creativity and fact? Actually, I'd add a third dimension, 
because I think modern selling, and by the way, I learned this at HP many, many years ago, is not just either art and or science. I'd suggest it's also engineering. Mm. You see, engineering is about finding uh, repeatable, implementable answers to common issues or problems. And I think if you want to scale a sales organization, you actually need a blend of art, of that creativity. You need science. You need the data. And you need engineering. You need an ability to you know, encapsulate the data and apply it in a way which drives repeatable results. Forecasting remains one of the most difficult challenges for B2B sales teams. How can sales leaders use data to improve forecasting accuracy? You know, it starts with having good data to begin with. And a lot of forecasting challenges, I think, come from inadequate or incomplete or unreliable data. Or they come, as you might have you know, alluded to just a bit earlier, not from data, but from a, a gut feel or an instinct. If you don't have good data, if you don't have consistent data, if you don't actually know what you're looking for, if you don't know what's important in assessing the potential of a sales opportunity, forecasting will always be a challenge. Sales leaders can use data to improve their forecasting accuracy by first making sure it is accurate, timely, and complete. But I'd also say that when you look at patterns of success, and I do this a lot with clients, it's rare to find that you know there are dozens of factors that drive success in a sales opportunity. Very often boils down to about half a dozen factors that if you know them, if you're on top of them, have a very high predictive value as to are they likely to do anything? Are they likely to choose us? Are they likely to decide in a timely fashion? There end up being probably six to eight data points which are unique for each sales process. I'm talking beyond just the value of the deal and things like, you know, CRM assigned probabilities. But it's genuine data. It's data about the status or situation of the opportunity. And if you identify those by looking at your patterns of success, at your, you know, winning opportunities, you then need to rigorously insist that you know where you stand on these six to eight variables across all of your opportunities. You know, a lot of this comes down to the culture of the company, actually. You know, you see organizations with a pretty brutalist regime of forecasting. You know, they'll get the salespeople to stand up maybe once a week and go through a routine of making commitments in terms of which deals are going to close at what value and uh, by what close date without any real forensic examination of the facts underlying that. To me, that's almost a gut instinct approach to management. You you get the salespeople to stand up to make their judgments. You hold them to it, but you don't actually attempt to forensically evaluate whether the salespeople's judgments and projections have any relationship to reality. So I don't think this is just down to CRM or just down to data quality. I think it's a cultural thing that organizations 
when they're thinking about forecasting, of course they need to get each salesperson to make a current assessment of their pipeline and you know their judgment. But they actually also, I believe, need to then drill into that judgment, look to the underlying data, look to what the salesperson knows and doesn't know about the opportunity so as to better assess the likely quality of the forecast you're being presented with. And of course, you need to back that up with some sort of analytics that point to past performance of you know, similar deals. I think one of the things that analytics can do is to really highlight what I'd call unnatural acts. You know, the salesperson or the sales leader's confidence that a deal will close within a certain time period, despite the fact that almost never in recorded history has an opportunity of that size closed from that stage in the pipeline in the projected close date. So you really need to look for those outliers, those unnatural acts, and be very, very cautious about rolling them up into your forecast. The first step to improving forecasting, Bob noted, is gaining a better understanding of your sales funnel. Well, I think it's really valuable to understand the shape of your pipeline. Does it narrow quickly from the top or does it continue with almost straight sides until a long way down the sales process? So just that optical view of the pipeline gives you a lot of insight into what's really going on. And if you think about what drives the shape of the funnel, it's things like velocity, time in stage, and conversion rate, you know, the success in moving whatever percentage of opportunities from one stage to the next or from top to bottom in the funnel. But in my experience, the most efficient funnels are the ones that qualify hard and qualify early. So the pipeline tends to narrow quite quickly from the big neck. Inefficient pipelines tend to have the opposite shape. And, of course, what that means is there's a load of deals that will end up not closing that nevertheless hang about in the pipeline for an absolutely unnecessarily long amount of time, uh, long beyond, in truth, the point at which they've probably already been lost. So I think sales leaders absolutely need to uh, visualize the funnel, both at the grand level and right down to the level of the individual salesperson. And it can be very illuminating to compare the different funnel shapes for different salespeople. You end up finding that some are good at qualifying early and at moving opportunities through. Others actually, you know, optically and by a series of data points, really struggle to qualify and struggle to move deals through the funnel. Once you've established these sort of different profiles, you can start then to try and understand, so what is it that the successful salespeople do? What questions do they ask? What things do they do at each relevant stage in the sales pipeline? And your goal must be to take that learning and coach and aid and apply the less effective salespeople to up their game. So a lot of people have been talking about the potential now for machine learning when it comes to forecasting. Do you think that 
that technology has a lot of potential for that? I think it depends on how complex your sales process is and how many variables there are in the environment. You know, I, I was reminded the other day that one of the first applications of computing to forecasting was with Lions Tea Rooms in the UK. They had a chain of cafes around the country, and they used things like temperature and so on to predict how many cups of tea and cakes they needed to supply each of the stores. Now, they had some pretty simple variables. Yeah, was it a weekend or a day of the week? Was it a public holiday? Uh, What was the outbound temperature? There was a, a correlation between a few relatively simple data points and the consequent consumption of teas and cakes. So actually, you might think of that as machine learning in a way, and it was pretty successful. I think it gets harder the more complex the environment you have, and the almost inevitably, if you've got a challenge in data completeness and data reliability. So, so I think in very complex sales environments, you're probably going to still need to rely on informed evidence-backed judgment, and that I don't see a day where in complex selling everything could be accomplished through machine learning. But I do think there's a sort of a growing level of validation, of checking that, you know, intelligent machine learning can deliver. Now it's time for our new data-focused segment, Top 3. What are the top three metrics you look at to assess sales, and what do those numbers tell you? So I'm going to avoid saying the, the obvious, like the volume of deals and the value of deals in pipeline, because I think everybody knows to look at those. Mm -hmm. I think the three that I found most insightful are firstly, velocity, the speed with which opportunities are moving from stage to stage in the sales process and the pipeline. And the TAS group and other researchers have established a very intriguing correlation between the length of time an opportunity remains at a stage in the pipeline and its likelihood of closing. It's, of course, an inverse relationship. Mm -hmm. Winning deals tend to move more quickly through the pipeline. So I'd say metric number one is velocity, speed, average time from stage to stage, and making sure you evaluate that at every level in your pipeline. Overall, right down to the individual salesperson. I think the second metric is win rate. And again, uh, win rate, effectively, the percentage of deals that convert from one stage to the next and from top to bottom in the pipeline. And you can learn a great deal about win rate, but you can't just think of it as the win rate from the top to the bottom of the funnel. You learn a heck of a lot more when you profile how efficient the whole pipeline and individual salespeople are at moving deals from one stage to the next in the pipeline. And the third key metric for me then is forecast accuracy. You know, if you compare the judgments that your sales team makes at the beginning of the forecasting period to the actual results at the end of it, you can pretty quickly come to learn who's on top of their game when it comes to forecasting and who's thinking of it as an art at best. Velocity, forecast accuracy, win rate. Those are my top three. What do you think about the data 
quality in the average CRM implementation? Is that an issue that you come up against a lot with your clients? Almost always. Right. But you see the whole spectrum of data quality mistakes or challenges. You see organizations that have chosen to try and collect so much information, which they end up not actually using, that it's almost inevitable that they're going to be big gaps in the data. Or the salespeople will fill in the field unthinkingly, simply to get management off their banks. You know, there is actually a danger, if you're not thoughtful about it, of trying to collect too much information. I think you need to have a, a purpose for every piece of information you're trying to track and monitor in a CRM. But, you know, even if you make the assumption that you've come to an intelligent, balanced judgment about how much information you want, it is very often incomplete or inadequate or out of date. It remains a significant challenge. The good thing about having an analytics tool at your disposal is that you can identify where those data weaknesses are, you know, whether there's a universal weakness in a certain set of fields which are just not being either completed or accurately updated right across the board, or whether you have some very specific challenges with individuals in terms of their data quality and completeness. But room for improvement is my summary. Now it's time for risky business. What's the most dangerous thing that Bob's ever done? Let's find out. Well, uh, I don't know about dangerous. I think scary. Many, many years ago, I went on holiday and went parasailing. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the intriguing thing, it wasn't the parasailing that threw me. It was so, you know, I'm somewhat short-sighted and uh, was dumped in the water only to find I was surrounded by these sort of menacing shoal of jellyfish, which I could only see slightly vaguely. So I had no concerns about being up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I found being in the water surrounded by all these amorphous jellyfish somewhat disconcerting. I could see how that would be a little scary for sure, especially because there are some jellyfish that are actually dangerous and can kill you. And I had uh, no knowledge either way. I simply assumed that the boat driver was, you know, too concerned about my best interest to take me anywhere where that might be uh, of some danger. If you'd like to learn more about Bob Apollo and Inflection Point, visit www.inflection-point.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and come back in two weeks for more data-driven insights.